You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I sat down with what you might call a correspondent from the field, Mr. James Durenberger. James is a senior director at Embark, which means he's one of the people we have out in the field executing engagements and helping clients solve their problems. James has helped his clients on a number of stock-based compensation accounting problems and offers really practical perspective on this topic. As always, we have Adam here to blow our minds with the technical portion. We did something a little different this week and decided to make this episode two parts. We felt like our episodes were getting a little longer and longer, and as I've said before, this type of content is like medicine, best served in doses. So you'll get your first dose today, and we'll pick back up next episode with your second dose. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Olson, and we are also joined by our guest, James Durenberger. James is a senior director in our accounting advisory group here at Embark. James, how long have you been at Embark? I've been at Embark for a little over six years now. Wow. And how long have you been doing accounting? Oh, 12 years? No, 14 years? Yeah. Wow. Adam, I've never asked you that. How long have you been doing accounting? <laughs> Let me do a math. <laughs> Uh, probably close to 16 years now. Wow. Man, I think I was still in elementary school when you guys started doing accounting. <laughs> and James, have you ever been on a podcast before? I have not been on a podcast before, no. Well, welcome, because we're going to have a really good time today. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be a good time because we are talking about stock-based compensation, which for some of you, you might have read that title, like me, and that sent shivers down your spine. But I assure you, these guys can help bring more clarity on this topic. So let's dive in. Adam, you know the drill. Let's start with an overview. Sure. Um, I know ASC 718 provides the guidance on accounting for share-based awards or payments. If you were to summarize the basic premise of 718, what would you say? Yeah, so really the overall objective behind all the accounting, and we'll get into some of the complexities here today, but it's really just a you know, allow reporting entities to reflect the cost of the share-based awards or payments that they provide to their employees or not employees in their financial statements in exchange for the services those employees provide or goods that they may receive um, that are associated with the awards. Um, the amount of cost they generally recognize is, is going to be based on the grant date fair value associated with the awards themselves. And 718 really requires entities to use what's known as kind of a fair value-based method to kind of come out, uh, come up with those um, total costs for those awards. And it might be helpful before we start getting too technical to rewind a little bit and talk about why a company would issue share-based awards in the first place. What's usually the motivation here? Uh, well, obviously, you know, stock you know, comp, stop options, those types of things are, you know, viewed as incentives to the employees. Mm -hmm. um, and really they help kind of align the employees' interests with those of the companies and the company's shareholders because they've got, you know, some skin in the game now. You know, they have the potential to have equity interests in the company. Um, and this is in lieu of like a company having to, you know, maybe pay like a cash bonus or something like that. So, you know, there's a couple advantages to issuing stock options. And one is like, it obviously makes it more cost effective for a company. They don't have to put cash out the door. So if they're trying to come up with creative um, employment packages to attract talent, including stock options can be viewed as kind of an attractive option. Um, but also from like an HR perspective, I think it's, it's beneficial from like a turnover, um, you know, employee turnover, because 
with most awards, there's going to be some type of service condition involved and it will, which will require the employee to have to stay on for a certain period of time. Is there ever a case where a non-employee might receive stock-based awards? And if there is, what's the difference between an employee and a non-employee? Yeah, there are. So stock-based awards can can also be offered to non-employees, even customers of the company themselves. Um, and so in the past, there were actually you know lots of differences in how the accounting worked. Um, non-employee awards were subject to guidance outside of ASC 718 and ASC 505. Um, but back in 2018, the FASB actually issued an accounting standard update to help align a lot of the accounting, which does make things a bit easier for companies that give awards to both employees and non-employees. So that that ASU 27 or sorry 2018-07 um, helped you know align the guidance within 718 to both employee and non-employee awards. There's still a few exceptions um, related to non-employee awards that differ from employee awards, but generally the the model and methods are are, are aligned. So for simplicity's sake, for the rest of our conversation, does it make sense for us to kind of focus our attention on the employee awards and just assume, for the most part, non-employee awards will be the same? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, there there are some minute differences. So um, for sure, if you've got some non-employee awards, definitely check out that ASU. Um, I would also add, you know, I mentioned customers were also kind of fall into that non-employee um, bucket. So they'll also align with that ASU. Um, but obviously, with the adoption of 606, um, there is guidance out there for consideration that's paid to a customer. Um, and so originally, 606 did not address that issue. And so there was an additional ASU issue to help um, align the guidance for equity instruments that are paid to customers. So ASU 2019-08 um, is another area you would want to potentially look at if you are providing equity type instruments to um, your customers. Okay, good to know. So let's dive into the basics. Where does one start if they think they have an arrangement that may be subject to the guidance of ASC 718? Yeah, I think the best place to start is just to make sure you understand what what types of instruments or awards are within the scope of 718 and maybe those that aren't. And so broadly, there's kind of three categories that you know I think of when trying to understand if an award in which a company receives services from their employees is subject to 718. So obviously, if a company is issuing stock or stock options or other equity instruments, likely in the scope of 718. Um, also, if the company is incurring liabilities to pay cash mm-hmm. uh, potentially to those employees, but that amount of cash that they would receive is based, you know, at least in some part on the company's, um, you know, stock or share price, um, that would also make it subject to the guidance in 718. Um, and then incurring any other types of liabilities that would ultimately be settled through the issuance of stock will we'll make those instruments as well subject to 718. Okay. So what are some types of awards that fall under this guidance? Yeah, so most obvious like stock options, right? We were talked about that. That's generally what you see employees offer up to, um, I'm sorry, employers offer up to their employees. Uh, but other, you know, types of awards are, you know, restricted stock. You're talking about restricted stock units or RSUs. Um, stock appreciation rights could be another one. Some companies have employee stock purchase plans um, that would also be subject to 718. Um, those are probably some of the more common ones. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other arrangements that we do see frequently that could be subject to 718, and some of them, you know, require a little more judgment and analysis. So. Um, a common one is, and we see this a lot, particularly with a lot of private equity backed um, companies, is 
you know, offering, you know, certain members of management or employees um, profit interests in the company. And so the assessment of what are that profit interests, um, there's, you know, an award under 718 or something subject to other U.S. GAAP, like deferred compensation, does really require an evaluation of all kind of the facts in terms of the award. So can be a little bit more judgmental there for sure. Um, another one is an LTIP, so a long-term incentive plan. You know, oftentimes those are paid in cash, um, but if the amount, like I said, of the LTIP is somewhat, you know, tied to the company's stock or share price to evaluate what payment should be made out of the LTIP, it could be subject to 718, you know, but however, if that LTIP was based on some internal metric or something else, like a sales target or EBITDA or something like that, then it would be subject to other gap as well. So if you got some of those other types of awards or programs um, within your organization, it you know you definitely kind of have to look at um, really how are those awards settled and paid. Awesome, that's good information to be aware of. Now, James, let's turn it over to you. Once we know our share-based award or payment is in the scope of ASC 718, what's next? Yeah, so as we talked about earlier, uh, although the employee and non-employee guidance is pretty aligned, we still have to determine whether the award is granted to an employee or a non-employee. Oh, okay. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> does ASC 718 provide direction on this determination or does judgment come into play here? It does provide direction. The guidance defines an employee as someone that a grantor of the stock-based compensation award exercises the right of sufficient control like an employee-employer relationship based on common law. Yeah. Determining the common law relationship is derived from the IRS guidance, so specifically Rule 87-41 on relevant factors to determine whether the individual constitutes an employee under common law. Individuals that receive rewards that don't qualify as an employee under common law would be considered non-employees. That being said, there are some exceptions to the rule just like anything else, and judgment will come into play. So not to be confused with common law marriage, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, not, not common law marriage. <laughs> common law employee, okay. So in what circumstances do these exceptions apply? Yeah, so there's three common areas where a little and more analysis has to be performed, and those related to grants that are granted to members of the employee's board of directors, leased employees, or awards to other employees of pass-through entities. Okay, yep, sounds like there could be some gray area. So once we do know that our individual is an employee, and will you account for these as an employee under ASC 718? Where do we go from there? Yeah, so now we have to measure the award. So ASC 718 states that you have to measure the award on the fair value and so at the grant date. So it's important to note that the fair value that they're referencing is not the same as the fair value in ASC 820. All right, well, we'll come back to that fair value piece, but before you go there, Let's start with determining the grant date. Is that pretty straightforward? Yeah, there's specific guidance to assess to make sure that there's an actual grant date and it's been established. There's five criteria, and I'm just going to walk through them real quick on my notes. Uh, the employee and employees have reached a mutual understanding of the award's key terms and conditions. The company is contingently obligated to issue shares or transfer the assets to employees who fulfill the vesting conditions the employee begins to benefit from or adversely affected by the changes in the employer's stock price, where the award depends on subsequent changes in the price. I know that's a little wordy. Awards are approved by the board of directors, management, or, or other approvals are required. 
The recipient should meet the definition of an employee if the award is for an employee service. So I know that's a lot of information, but it's, it's pretty, when you unpack it all and you look at it, usually the grant date is substantiated out on the actual grant. It's listed and uh, you can go through and by reading the grant, determine whether the grant date has been established. So it's also important to note that usually the way that mechanically works is a company will have a large grant at a specific time and that those are then allocated to individual employees. So the while the board of directors has approved a batch of grants, um, that they may not be assigned to individuals. And so the grant date would be when they're actually assigned to the individuals that makes and sense. allocated to the individual employees. Yeah, and I guess in that first piece, you, you talked about mutual understanding. Could you give a little bit of a definition? What is meant when we say mutual understanding? So mutual understanding exists when the awards have been approved and there's and, and then where the award is a unilateral grant, the recipient may usually doesn't have the ability to negotiate the terms and conditions of the employee. The key terms and conditions of the award are expected to be communicated to the individual. So they receive the actual grant document or through some portable, any way that communication is, is given to them pretty short after. Yeah, and that, that timing thing, you know, is important to understand. I mean, generally it's not meant to be like weeks or months after um, that they're going to communicate this. It's usually a matter of just, a f you know, a few days or whatever is like kind of customary for the company's like HR practices to communicate like, you know, similar things to employees. So, you know, something to just keep in mind that you can't say like, you know, we haven't provided this, but we will in a month or two, you know, it's probably not going to suggest that just because it's been approved that a grant date has been established. That makes sense. And then another term we listed up at the top, um, we talked about the company is contingently obligated to issue shares or transfer assets to employees who fulfill vesting conditions. What are vesting conditions? Can we dive into that one a little bit too? Yeah. So as I mentioned, like, you know, you want to motivate, you want to retain your employees, you know, a big piece of that is that they, in order to get the award that you're going to give them, they got to satisfy these vesting conditions. Um, and an award that's legally vested is when the employee then has the right to receive and retain that award and there's nothing else they have to do. So they kind of have the benefits of holding the, you know, if it settles into a share of the share itself. Uh, but vesting conditions, you know, are going to fall into one of three categories. So it's, you know, it's going to either be a service condition, a performance condition, or a market condition. Um, and I will say today, I mean, agreements are getting way more creative, complex. <laughs> I don't know how you want to say it. <laughs> um, so there's often multiple vesting conditions that are included in, in a lot of um, grants themselves. So, it, you know, it's not unusual to have a, a combination of these different types of vesting conditions. And I think it's always helpful when we can give on-the-ground examples, helps us understand a little better. So could you give some examples of each of those vesting condition types? Yeah, yeah. So let's start with service condition. I think this one's the most obvious one. So like a service condition obviously relates to the employee rendering services to the company. So, you know, common examples could be, you know, you vest 100% in the award after providing two years of service, or you vest... 50% of the award in year one and 50% of the award in year two um, after providing service. So something like that, you know, it's obviously tied to some type of time period and the service related to that time period. 
Um, a performance condition um, is generally going to also include a service component, uh, but that it's also going to relate to achieving some type of specified performance condition that's really defined solely related to the company's own like operations or activities. Um, so a lot of common examples here might be, you know, the achievement of a certain revenue target, um, you know, EBITDA metrics potentially, or it could be even tied to a specific event. So a lot of common agreements, um, grant agreements will have a vesting condition that's tied to the achievement of an IPO or a change in control transaction um, for the award to um, vest. And then the last one, market conditions. So this one really relates to the achievement of like a specified share price of the company or an amount of intrinsic value that's indexed solely to the, the company's shares. So common examples here is an award that vests when the underlying stock you know, reaches a certain share price level um, or award that vests maybe based on a specified rate of return to the controlling shareholders. You think about like an internal rate of return or multiple of their invested capital, something along those lines. Okay. So as promised, I'm going to circle back to that fair value piece. Let's say <laughs> we've established our grant date, met all those conditions. What do you do with the fair value? It sounds pretty complicated. Yeah, it can be. And like, depending, like I said, the complexity of the award and its vesting conditions. And like I said, people are definitely getting more and more creative with the way they structure some of these grant agreements. But um, in general, you know, the fair value of the award reflects the cost of the company um, of granting the award itself and the estimated value of those instruments that the company is ultimately going to be obligated to provide to the employees once they satisfy their vesting conditions. And so when people are trying to establish a fair value, there is sort of like a hierarchy that you would normally go through. Um, so the first one is like, you know, looking at whether there's observable market prices of identical instruments, you know, if applicable. The next one is observable market prices of similar instruments. And then you kind of end up in the last category is where you have to basically come up with your own valuation method and approach, um, you know, oftentimes an option type pricing model to establish fair value. Um, most companies will always kind of default to that last bucket because it's really challenging to find, <laughs> you know, other um, instruments out there that all reflect the same terms and conditions of awards, especially if they're very you know, creative terms and conditions that are embedded in the grant agreement themselves, um, they're not going to likely be able to find any similar instruments or identical instruments to really use an observable market price. So in many cases, or most cases, I would say, you know, people are, are kind of defaulting to having to use a valuation approach to come up with the grant date for a value. So with that in mind, does the guidance require a specific type of option pricing model? Yeah, it doesn't specify that you have to use one type of option pricing model. It'll likely depend on the award itself and a lot of those vesting conditions or terms of the award. Um, you know, some of the more common ones, I think most people are familiar with like the Black-Scholes type modeling approach. You know, that's used for, you know, a lot of times for very simplistic options um, to, you know, you know, value those in more complex scenarios, you might see what's known as like a lattice or binomial model. Um, and then in some, you know, even more limited cases, maybe something referred to as a Monte Carlo simulation, which are, you know, very like complex, um, valuation techniques, um, that are used when awards do have, you know, very nuanced conditions, you know, included in the agreement themselves. 
But the guidance, you know, it basically states that you don't use one of those three, you know, maybe there's another model that's better fits the award itself, you know, so long as it meets the measurement objectives of 718. So that fair value method, um, and it is a methodology that is, you know, widely accredited by other valuation specialists and used in practice, then, then that model would be appropriate. So what are some challenges companies may face in performing an option pricing model of fair value? Yeah, I think there's a lot. I know James will probably hit on more, you know, later on in our conversation, just like practically what he sees a lot of, you know, clients he's worked with um, when they struggle to, to do valuations. But, you know, I think outside of like a very simplistic Black-Scholes model, um, you know, companies are are probably going to be engaging a valuation specialist, even with some Black-Scholes modeling, they may engage a valuation specialist just to help because it, it can become very nuanced. Um, particularly like if you take like a Black-Scholes, for example, or really any of the models themselves is that, you know, one of the inputs generally is going to be kind of the fair value of the underlying, you know, stock or whatever the award settles in. Um, on the grant date itself. And if you think about like a private company who isn't valuing their stock, you know, very often, if at all, um, having to determine that value in addition to all the other assumptions that go into some of these option pricing models, like a volatility assumption, um, things of that nature can be maybe a little bit over their head. And so those are areas where I think some companies struggle with um, when they're trying to do the valuation themselves. And that's why they bring in outside help. So since it is pretty complicated for private companies. Is there any relief for private companies out there? There's not a ton of relief. Um, there is some though. Um, it, it, and one particularly relates to like um, equity classified awards um, in determining that share price input that I mentioned. And so this actually just happened not that long ago. So in October of this year, the FASB did finalize um, a project that they had on their agenda, um, which basically allows you know, private companies to elect an expedient um, related to that um, share price input, which is basically a reasonable application of a reasonable valuation method is what the, the guidance refers to as being allowed there. And in, in more simplistic terms, what that basically means is that a lot of private companies um, obtain kind of these annual 409A valuations are done for tax purposes um, but the, the methodology behind those 409A evaluations actually don't align with the same fair value guidance in U.S. GAAP. And so, you know, if companies were to use that as an input, it's technically a non-GAAP input into, you know, any option pricing model that they're doing. And this guidance really basically allows them to align using those other valuation data points um, in their option pricing models to help just eliminate the need to have to come up with multiple valuations. Um, so that was ASU 2021-07. So, you know, if you are a private company, you don't have any plans to go public in the near term, you know, it may be something for sure worth um, adopting early um, if you are, you know, having to value new grants. All right, well, let's shift gears over to classification. We talked about these equity classified awards, but I guess that implies that there might be liability classified awards. So what do we need to be on the lookout for when evaluating classification and trying to figure out where to put these things on our balance sheet? So let's look at the type of awards that would cl be classified as a liability under 718. 
So there's specific criteria, so I'm going to list them out. So an award with conditions or other features that are indexed to something other than market, performance, or service conditions. Another is an award that meets certain criteria of ASC 480, distinguishing liabilities from equity. A share award with a repurchase feature that permits an employee to avoid bearing the risks and rewards that were normally associated of an equity-based ownership for a reasonable period of time, or a share-based award where it's probable that the employee will pre- employer will prevent the employee from bearing the risks and rewards normally associated with stock ownership within six months after issuance. An option or similar instruments that would require an employer to pay an employee cash or other assets unless the settlement is based on a contingent event that is not probable or outside of the control of the employee. And finally, an option or similar instrument in which the underlying shares are classified as liabilities. That is a lot. (laughs) So like we're talking about earlier, this guidance is pretty complex. So it's important to go through these each one of these bullet points as, as, as you're working through. Okay, and so like you said earlier, you would look at these and if it meets the conditions, it's liability classified. If it does not meet the conditions, we then treat it as equity? Yeah. Okay, so to recap, if they don't meet those criteria you just listed, they would be considered equity. And if they do meet the criteria, they're liability classified. So. Is the initial measurement impacted by liability classification? I know we talked about uh, subsequent measurement, but what about the initial measurement? So on initial measurement, no. The liability awards are still measured at fair value, the same as an equity award. As we noted earlier, though, liability awards are remeasured at each reporting period. Mm -hmm. One exception to using the grant date for a value does exist for non-public companies who can elect accounting policy to use the intrinsic value to remeasure the liability. Okay. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is going to be a two-parter, and we're going to pause right here. Tune in next time for the remainder of the discussion. Thank you for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.